chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. And as you're turning there, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, that this is a time already written in your book before it ever existed. And so, Lord, we therefore affirm and do so with great comfort and assurance that none of us are here by chance. We are here by your divine appointment. We are here under your ruling providence. And so, Father, we therefore look to you with a great holy anticipation and with an earnest seeking to what you have prepared for us by the teaching, by the proclamation of your holy word tonight. We pray, Lord, that by the truth of your holy word, that we will be more sanctified into the very image of Christ Jesus our Lord, the great purpose for which you have predestined us for. And so, Father, we pray now that the Holy Spirit would mercifully accompany both the teaching and the hearing of your word this evening. And we thus look unto you, Lord, for your word to run unencumbered and for it to be glorified in our hearts and our very midst tonight. These things we ask for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we turn to Isaiah chapter 8, we're going to begin reading at verse 11. And we are going to read all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 22. So starting at verse 11, Isaiah chapter 8, here's what we read. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so reads the infallible inerrant, sufficient word of the living God. This evening, we return to our present teaching series in Isaiah chapter 7 through 9, where our focus will be in chapter 8, verses 11 to 22. In this portion of Isaiah's prophecy, the Lord through his prophet is calling upon his remnant to stand fast and hold true to God's word and promise despite 
what the majority of Judah's population are both saying and doing. It was a direct word from God to his true saints to be as unlike the world in which they lived by who they were and how they navigated in their present times. They were to be counter-cultural saints. They were in the world, yes, but they were not of the world. But to be faithful to the Lord like this in Judah in the latter half of the 8th century B.C. was not going to be a cakewalk. Nothing would be easy for God's people to persevere in faith and obedience during this season. Judah was being squeezed on all sides. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria pressuring Judah to either join them to fight against Assyria or be destroyed themselves. Then there was the kingdom of Assyria itself, which was coming for all these smaller state powers and would achieve success by taking them and nearly annihilating them by the sword. So to God's remnant, facing such frightening times as these, how were they to steer their course? What do you do if in the foreseeable future your nation is going to be crushed? What do you do if you live in a nation going to ruin because of the policy of her leaders? What then do you have? What can you cling to? What must you hold on to when you live as God's remnant in a falling nation? What should be true of God's remnant at such a season as this? Isaiah chapter 8, 11 through 22, answers these questions by helping us see two things about God's people in every age. First, what defines God's people and then second, what directs God's people? Let's consider each of these points in turn. First, what defines God's people? This beginning consideration opens up at verse 11 by Isaiah's own personal testimony to a far greater pressure coming upon him than the voices of the outside world. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. On the, one hand, <clears throat> on the one hand, God assured Isaiah that what he was about to speak was not from man but God. The strong hand of the Lord pressing on Isaiah was God's power strengthening his prophet in seizing him to speak God's word despite how unfavorable it would be to the majority. On the other hand, with this divine calling came a divine admonition not to walk in the way of this people. In other words, both Isaiah and the rest of God's remnant were to position themselves in a counter-cultural stance. They were not to come under the yoke of Judah and its leaders who refused to receive and thereby rejected God's word altogether. God's remnant would be defined as a people who walked by faith and not by sight. But what is called for to walk by faith in the Lord? Well, three things that we can draw out of verses 11 through 15. First, it is a faith that separates. It is a faith that separates. In verse 12, the Lord speaks to Isaiah and the rest of God's remnant. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. What Judah called a conspiracy was the word from God given by Isaiah that they were not to seek foreign aid from Assyria. Isaiah, as God's prophet, advocated a policy of faith in the Lord as opposed to trusting man. But to King Ahaz and his advisors, this was treason. The trust in God was foolish because the king and his court were men of the flesh. They feared man, not God. They dreaded Assyria, not the Lord of hosts. 
So then for Isaiah and God's remnant to go against the policy of these unbelievers was to separate themselves in a way that could not be hidden. Their faith in God was a scandal to the rest of Judah who had no such faith. But it was a faith that stood out in a holy defiance against Judah's unbelief and thereby put God's remnant in a place of real separation by both word and deed. Second, it is a faith that fears. It is a faith that fears, but the fear is not in man, but in God. So we read in verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. When we read the Lord of hosts, that title is in the emphatic position. And by the conjunction, but, there is a clear contrast being made between the Lord and Assyria. In sharp distinction from an army of mere men, there is the Lord of hosts, who has at his disposal all the armies of heaven with all the resources available in boundless measure that no man or devil can stand against and overthrow. So, who then is to be truly feared? Who then is to be honored and trusted as the one who is unlike anyone or anything in this world? There is no comparison to the eternal living God whose might and power is holy, infinite, unchanging, and absolutely sovereign. Indeed, Isaiah will much later in this prophetic book rehearse this but in a larger content in the 40th chapter of his prophetic revelation. Isaiah chapter 40 and beginning at verse 9 and reading to the end of the chapter. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations like Assyria or the United States or any other nation in all of history, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness Compare with him. Let me just pause right there. You realize that's a rhetorical question. That's a rhetorical question. Who are you going to liken to God? Who are you going to compare him with? The answer is no one. No one. There is no comparison. Verse 19. An idol... A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts 
for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What is the great point? The great point in the light of that large passage in Isaiah 40, but then the exhortation that's given right here in Isaiah chapter 8. Again, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. The point is this. When times of fear come upon us from the world, we must remember that God is the Lord of hosts and thus able to deliver his people whose trust is fixed in him. So our faith is a faith that fears, but it fears the living and true God with whom there is no comparison. Third, it is a faith that is fortified. It is a faith that is fortified. Not only is it a faith that separates and a faith that fears, but it is a faith that is fortified. Reading the beginning of verse 14, the Lord promises his people that he will become a sanctuary. He will become a sanctuary. Our faith in God is not in vain. It is not a hopeless hope. What God promises here is that in him, in him there will be true protection, a place of definite refuge that neither man nor devil can invade and overtake. This is because God is our sanctuary. And so wherever we are, Wherever we are as his people, he is there with us, which makes our circumstances perfectly safe in spite of how threatening the world may seem. Just think for a moment of the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. The Lord Jesus in verse 18 of that passage in Matthew 28, remember he says to his apostles, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So there is no portion, there is no part of this world 
that our Lord has not claimed as mine. This is mine. This belongs to me. And so with that divine authority, with that absolute sovereignty, Jesus then says to his apostles, go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them whatsoever things I have commanded you. And you remember the last words? Verse 20, Jesus says, And lo, I am with you always. You realize that's a conditional promise in that context. The Lord sends his apostles into the world of that period in time, no different than he continues to send his men into this world, into the nations, to do what? To make disciples. And going into the nations, and we know this, from what we have studied and what we have read concerning just foreign missions, going into the nations can be a very dangerous, a very frightening thing. And so the Lord, by promising, I'm with you always, is promising, promising to his saints sent to the nations to make disciples I will be with you. I will be your sanctuary. I will be your refuge. Wherever you go, I'm there, and you are perfectly safe. Perfectly safe. In January 1862, this truth of God as our sanctuary became a most vivid experience for the Scottish missionary, John G. Payton. Having labored for only four years to bring the gospel to cannibal tribes on the island of Tanna in the New Hebrides, a civil war broke out among them, among the tribes, which brought Payton to realize he could no longer stay on the island. In the midst of this war, the cannibals decided to target Payton. Getting word of this plot against him, he left everything he had and escaped across the island where a friendly chief hid Peyton up a large tree. There, in that tree, John G. Peyton lodged all night in prayer. And recounting many years later this trying season, he wrote in his autobiography, The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. John G. Payton understood what Isaiah says here to the remnant of God's people. The Lord is your sanctuary. He is your protection. He is your refuge. It doesn't matter where you are in this world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's going on around you, how dangerous it may be. You cannot be 
in a safer place than with the Lord as your sanctuary, as your refuge. Well, how are we as God's people, how are we defined when times get tough? We are defined by a life lived by faith and not by sight. But what does this look like, this life lived by faith and not by sight? Well, when we walk by faith and not by sight, we walk as separated from a world that does not trust in the Lord but places all its trust in the folly of man. We also walk in the fear of the Lord as opposed to dreading the threats of man. And lastly, when as God's people we walk by faith with our reliance resting entirely in the Lord, we then come to see and experience the truth that our safest and most secure refuge is the Lord alone. Well, for God's remnant, there in Judah, on the eve of what would be Judah's destruction, the Lord assures his people through his prophet, do not forget who you are by not forgetting who I am as your God. That's the essential message that God was delivering to his remnant through Isaiah in the first portion of this section in Isaiah chapter 8. But for the rest of Judah, like all unbelievers, what the Lord is to his people becomes only a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to those who are not his people. This means that as safe and secure as God's people find their Lord to be, yet to the unbelievers in Judah, they will discover that there's nothing easygoing or domesticated about the true and living God whom they despise. The same God who is security to his people will be the ruin to those not his people as he judges them for their unbelief. But moving now to our next major point, from what defines God's people, let's consider further on what directs God's people. What directs God's people. Verse 16 opens with a command from the Lord to Isaiah to bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Isaiah was now responsible to bind up God's revelation in the sense that he is to close it spiritually in the hearts of God's true followers. How this worked out practically would be by the preaching and teaching Isaiah delivered to God's remnant as he explained God's word to them. And such a work for God's prophet remains the work for God's pastors his teaching shepherds whom he has given to the church to reprove, rebuke, and exhort by the proclamation of God's word, whether it's in season or out of season, even as Paul instructed Timothy in his pastoral charge in the city of Ephesus. In other words, the exhortation of Isaiah 8.16 remains in force for every pastor of every local church where God's people gather. The word of God is to be bound and sealed to the hearts of God's people by the means of preaching and teaching. But the immediate, con but the immediate reason to bind and seal God's word to God's people in the context of Isaiah 8 is because the pressure of Judah on God's remnant was to listen and follow other guides than the Lord. In verse 19, we, we have recorded the words of Judah to God's remnant, which was inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. 
Here we see where unbelieving Judah was getting their guidance. They were engaging in practices forbidden by God in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 9 through 13, consulting mediums and necromancers. They were actually seeking counsel from the dead for the living. Having defected from the living God as apostates, they sought their guidance from those who were channels of the demonic world who only navigated them in deeper darkness. This is why Isaiah questions rhetorically, but should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? These questions answer themselves. Only the living and true God should be consulted for guidance and direction. Elaborating further on this from Isaiah 8.19, Old Testament scholar E.J. Young wrote, This temptation to turn to the dead on behalf of the living is ever with us. The wickedness of such a practice is always before us. In times of calamity and personal sorrow, God's people must not forget him. The abominable practice of consulting the spirits is a forgetting of God. It is a denial of his very existence. These spirits mutter and chirp. They do not come out openly with clear-cut information. They are utterly different from the candid, thus saith the Lord of the prophets. If other nations consult their gods, which are not real, we who know the Lord should at all times consult him. In Old Testament days, this might be done through the prophets. In these latter days, God has given to us his infallible word, the Bible. When we wish to consult him, let us turn to the Bible for its words are the words of God himself. So how then are we as God's people directed? How are we directed? It is by scripture alone. By scripture alone. It is only by the word of God. And this fact for God's remnant is summed up in Isaiah 8 and verse 20 as the driving point of this entire passage. Look at what it says. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. The teaching and the testimony. What is that? The teaching is the revelation of God expressing his will for man's obedience. And the testimony is his revelation expressing his will as a system to be believed. In other words, it is the whole corpus of God's revelation, which is his written word, teaching us what God requires of us and bearing witness to the fact that this is from the Lord and not from man. But in times of great trial and distress, our flesh tempts us with the world to turn to other standards and counsels which will not lead us in the light but guide us to the darkness. The world will hold before us every other resource but God's word alone. Every other resource the world will point us to but never to the word of God. Never. This is why in the latter half of Isaiah 8 and verse 20, it says of such people, if they will not speak according to this word, that is this word from God, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What does that mean? This means that for those people who speak contrary to God's word, they remain in the darkness of sin and unbelief. They have, metaphorically speaking, no dawn. They live in the deep darkness of night where the morning light of God's word has yet to break through. 
And such is the case with all unbelievers. Man in sin, now get this picture, man in sin lives his life as someone groping in the dark, trying to find the light, but failing because he neither knows what it is nor where to go to get to it. And tragically, as the scripture reveals to us, when it is put before him, he rejects it. Because his heart has no love or hunger to want the truth which God gives by his word. Yet for God's remnant, for his people, living among such unbelievers who seek the darkness instead of the light, we must counter their unbelief by always contending to the teaching and the testimony. This is what guides us. This is what directs us. This is what makes us, think about it, this is what makes us so countercultural to a world in sin. According to Psalm chapter 1, instead of walking by the counsel of the ungodly, are standing in the way of sinners or associating with the scornful, God's remnant find their delight in what? In the instruction of the Lord. This is where God's people go against the stream of what the world calls wisdom or trendy or cool or hip. The world says, you should think like this and look at the meaning of life in this way. But God's people say no to the teaching and to the testimony. To the teaching and to the testimony. It is God's word alone which is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. Everything else outside of God's word which claims to be the way of wisdom for life is nothing but darkness and death. Now, what then can we learn principally from Isaiah chapter 8, 11 through 22 in light of what we've considered to be its teaching on the way God's people are counter-cultural saints? I want to give you two principal lessons that are very clearly drawn from this passage. Number one. We will always be treated as troublemakers when we stand against the policies of men who deny God's truth for man's folly. Now listen to that again. We will always be treated as troublemakers when we stand against the policies of men who deny God's truth for man's folly. Is this not what Isaiah was doing? Is this not what the remnant of God was doing as they stood against, stood opposed to King Ahaz in all his court? Yes. Yes. Let me give you another example. When God's prophet Elijah called Israel back to God, Israel's King Ahab accused Elijah of being the troubler of Israel. The troubler of Israel. Ahab hated God. Ahab hated God's word and thereby despised God's prophets as troublemakers only because they opposed Ahab's unbelief and rebellion. And what we need to understand is that the times have not changed. Not one bit. This has been the case in all ages when God's people hold fast to his word over against those in the world or even in the visible church who seek to circumvent God's way for man's way. Think of several examples historically. Think of Martin Luther. Martin Luther against Pope Leo X. 
Think of William Tyndale opposing King Henry VIII. Or Charles Spurgeon standing against the doctrinal downgrade of the Baptist Union. Or J. Grissom Machen countering the theological liberalism of American Presbyterianism. These men were troublers of Israel. They were troublers of Israel. Why? It was only because they trusted God in his word over against the unbelief of man. But now let's make this personal. Should we be any different? Should we be any different? Are we troublers of Israel? Are we troublers of Israel? If we stand for the truth of God's word, not in part, but in the whole, not only the world, but even those in the visible church will call us out as troublemakers. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. In my own personal experience, 26 years of pastoring, the first two churches that I pastored, I was called out in both of those churches as a troubler of Israel. And why? I mean, what, what, what was it that I was doing that was so wrong to many in those two congregations. Very simple. I believe that the Bible was the only rule for the faith and practice of the church. And therefore, I went against and stood opposed to all the policies and all the programs that those churches had made. What they called church God's word said different. And they didn't like it. The best example of this in my own experience in those first two churches, both of these churches were traditional, stereotypical Southern Baptist churches. And in neither church did I dare do one thing which for them was a sacred cow. I would not give an altar call. I would not at all support their invitation system. In the first church I pastored, the chairman of the deacons confronted me on that one Sunday morning. Of course, before Sunday school, it's always before Sunday school when they confront the pastor. And he wanted to know. He was demanding to know. Why don't you give an altar call? My answer? Simple. It's nowhere in the Bible. He was not listening to what I just said. And his next response was, if you don't give an altar call, no one will be saved. I'm quoting him verbatim. No exaggeration. You don't give an altar call, no one will be saved. I said, did you not hear what I just said? It's not in the Bible. There is no such practice. The word of God does not regulate this. I said, anyway, I said, who do you think saves? God or man? And of course, he knew the right answer. And he said, well, of course, God, but I said, no, 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 no. There's no but. It's just God alone. But of course, that would be the beginning of the end. <laughs> it would take a whole other year before I was ousted. All because I believe strongly and firmly the word of God alone is the rule of our faith and practice. And in the second church, 
It was the same issue. It was the very same issue. Of course, it was more than just that issue. I could be here all night telling you of the multiplicity of issues in that church that was opposed to the word of God. But again, the altar call came up. Why don't you give the altar call? Why don't you call people to come down and make a decision and pray the sinner's prayer and on and on it goes. And again, my answer was, it's not in the word. It's not in the word. The call of the gospel is believe and repent and you leave the results to God. That's it. But you see, to so many of those people, I was a troublemaker. All because I was standing opposed to their man-made policies of what they believed, what they had come to believe, made a church to be a church. But what they didn't realize, to their shame, and tragically for many, I'm afraid, even to their damnation, they had defected from the word of God a long time ago. So, again, the lesson is, we will always be treated as troublemakers when we stand against the policies of men who deny God's truth for man's folly. Here is the second principal lesson. Only the light of God's word will carry us through the darkness of our times. Only the light of God's word will carry us through the darkness of our times. Whether it's dark historical times or even in our own personal dark times, there is no safe guide to navigate our thinking and our feet but God's word alone to the teaching and to the testimony this is the watch word of God's remnant always always and brothers and sisters understand this the moment the moment you depart from the word of God, the moment you leave this, you have entered darkness. You have entered spiritual darkness. And you are opening yourself up to great calamity, to terrible things. Now, if, of course, you are one of the Lord's, then if you in any measure depart from his word, it will only be for a season because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. There will be a return, but, but here's the thing you got to think about. At what cost? At what cost? Is it worth it? Is it worth departing in any measure from the word for your life personally? For the church collectively? I mean, at what cost? We've got to think about that. And I always go back to David, King David. God forgave David's iniquity. He forgave David's iniquity with Bathsheba and and what he ordered against her husband, Uriah. But what did the Lord say to David? The sword will never leave your house. There's going to be a price you, you're going to pay. It won't be ultimate, eternal judgment. But you will pay some sort of measured price in this time, in this life. You may, not, you may not lose your soul for all eternity, but you may lose everything else here and now. And that's where we have to say, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth it.
I don't want to lose my marriage, my family. I don't want to lose my church family. I don't want to lose honoring the Lord by my reputation. I don't want to lose that and thereby dishonor him and bring reproach upon his name, etc., etc., etc. What's the cost? It's not worth it. And so our watchword must be always, as God's remnant, as God's people, to the teaching and to the testimony. Or as Charles Spurgeon told his congregation, be walking Bibles. Be walking Bibles. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for a passage and portion of your holy word that is to us both deeply comforting and very convicting. A passage of your holy scriptures that call us, Father, to greater faithfulness, to greater perseverance, to greater obedience to you. And Lord, we do petition you this night that it will become more and more our own personal and collective watch word as your people, as your church, where we will say, as did Isaiah and your remnant with him in the 8th century B.C., to the teaching and to the testimony. By Scripture alone shall we be ruled. Shall our lives, our faith be regulated. And we pray, Lord, that you will guard us, that you will keep us, that you will protect us from the many and varied temptations that will press in upon us at given times and seasons in our lives that will be calling us to other guides, to other counsels, to other standards that are in complete opposition to you, Lord, that speak contrary to your word. We pray, Holy Father, let us not be so deceived, but may we keep always your word before us as the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. These things we pray and ask for Jesus' sake, in his name, amen.